Welcome to Taking Notes with NextGen Venture Partners, where we have interesting conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators in the NextGen investing ecosystem. I'm your host, Dan Mindis. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. My guest today is Ben Foster. Ben is a product guru. He was the vice president of marketing at Opower, which went public before being acquired by Oracle. He's currently the chief product officer of a 200-employee-plus startup called GoCanvas. Over the years, he's advised formally more than 50 startups on product, including four currently. And in the conversation, Ben drops some serious wisdom about startups. Some of his lessons learned are counterintuitive. Uh, some of them made me think very seriously about how we do things at NextGen Venture Partners. And I think you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Uh, without further ado, here's Ben. Ben Foster, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, great to be here. Thanks so much. Ben, you've brought a number of lessons for us on product. Uh, why don't you hit us with lesson number one? <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So my first lesson, I think, when it comes to product management is really understanding the purpose of product management and really the purpose of product development. Um, I've seen time and time again with a lot of the advisory work that I've done with with various companies that they tend to not actually understand, believe it or not, the role of product management and the role of product development. You know, they've got their numbers that they want to hit this quarter. They've got the numbers that they want to hit next quarter. And they kind of see all these investments as being parallel drivers towards those. So whether it's marketing or sales or product and, and engineering, that they're all trying to kind of like work together to hit the numbers this quarter. And I think the reality is what you really need to do is kind of separate those two things out. You know, number one would be marketing and sales is trying to hit the numbers this quarter. But product and engineering's focus is really in hitting numbers a year or more out. And what that means is they're not really helping the sales team necessarily to kind of like, you know, close some sort of a gap that might exist right now, but instead trying to help them to achieve numbers that would otherwise be impossible down the road. Give us some examples. Yeah, sure. You know, I'll, I'll pull first an example from uh, my own operational experience. So I was previously the product, uh, you know, head over at Opower. And there, I think I was guilty of this myself. You know, I'll kind of be the first one to raise my hand and say, I think I was doing things a little bit wrong there. There were some cases where we were trying to deliver reports to end users that would try to drive down their energy efficiency use. And as you could imagine, with those reports that we're sending out, we've got you know millions of customers, so we've got this great situation where we can do a lot of A-B testing. And, and what that led to, though, was this kind of constant barrage of optimization requests that we had coming in. You know, let's go try this, let's see if we can tweak the numbers this way, et cetera. And the result was this very short-sighted focus about what can we do to drive the numbers up in this very short period of time or what can we do to go help the sales team to close this particular one deal by adding a feature that was maybe missing from the platform right now? And instead, what we could have been doing, and I think that you know really was sort of like an alarming experience for me, is when the CEO came up to me 20, 24 months later and said, you know, where's the real innovation been? What's the major module that we've delivered against this product? And I had this kind of wake up call where I had to answer the question saying, you know, I don't really know the answer to that. You know, we've done a lot of incremental improvements but I'm concerned that maybe we haven't built the next module that somebody would be willing to pay that much more for down the road. So Ben, you have this insight, right, that a product is really for the long term. You're now the chief product officer of a high growth startup. How are you applying it at GoCanvas? Yeah, at GoCanvas, I want to say that I really kind of learned from that, you know, that experience. And what I wanted to do was look at it in a completely new way to say, let's break up what our growth strategy is going to be over the next several years. And let's come into a product strategy that's going to 
address that. And let's go make the changes that we need to make today to go realize that vision that we have down the road that's going to result not in, you know, 20% incremental improvement this year, but it's going to result in 10x growth, you know, over like a three or four year period. And that's really kind of like what we're striving for here. And we've got a really good and solid kind of like vision and strategy to make that happen. And I think this really kind of came down to a meeting that I held with the entire company as an all hands meeting right after I joined. This was just a couple of months in where I had a heart to heart with the entire company and, and explained what the role of product management actually was so that we could then use that to kind of like parry a little bit against some of these inbound requests that are coming in. Like, hey, if we just had this one feature, I could close this deal that's worth five thousand dollars ARR. It's like, hey, look, five thousand ARR may mean a lot to you as a salesperson right now. But if we look in the grand scheme of things of where we're trying to get, making those kinds of improvements will have very small incremental ROI right now. But the real benefit that we can get is by focusing on the long term of where is our market actually headed? What are the future customers of GoCanvas really going to be looking for? And let's go build a strategy and vision and let's not distract ourselves with some of the short sighted types of things that we could be doing right now. And therefore, allowing us to really kind of concentrate our attention on those things that are going to be longer term. Let's talk about one of your other lessons, which is achieving that alignment around product vision and the importance of that alignment. That's a really good segue into the next one, which I would say is really that building a vision, a really robust product vision is paramount to success for a company. But not only that, but getting alignment around that vision. You know, there's tons of CEOs that I've talked to in some of the advisory work that I've done working with, you know, 50 plus startups where I've seen the same kind of thing time and time again, where I talk to the CEO they paint for me a really clear picture about what the vision and the strategy needs to be for the company, but they use some sort of terms that maybe you know are, are a little bit subject to uh, <laughs> uh, you know different kinds of definitions for different people. So maybe they'll say, "Hey, we you know we're going to be part of this Web 3.0 revolution, or we're going to do this kind of synergistic thing with these you know with these other kinds of companies through various integrations." And the problem is they're not really clear from their own customer's perspective what it is that they're going to provide for those customers, what the value proposition is today and what the value proposition is going to be in the future. And because of that, because of the subjectivity of some of those, uh, you know, visions and strategy type statements that they see, the reality is they believe that their own employees, even their own heads of departments um, are really clear on that strategy as well. And the reality is when you gut check against them and you kind of interview them and say, hey, why don't you play back to me what the strategy actually is? What would the CEO say about this? they can't do the same thing. And I've seen that kind of thing happen so many times. It's really you know, hard to describe how frequently I've found that to be the case. But it's something that I think plagues a lot of companies. And what happens is it manifests in some of the road mapping decisions. So you know, if you're a CEO or an entrepreneur or you're involved in a startup, you probably have those situations where you're doing a roadmap review and you start getting into all these kind of like nitpicky things of, I want this feature to be pushed out further or this other one needs to really be pulled in. And there's not as much explanation of why and the reality of why there are so many disconnects or so many different you know, points of confusion or disagreements about what should go into the roadmap is really because there are upstream disconnects, upstream misunderstandings that are happening within the business across the employee base that really are the responsibility of the CEO to say, here's the vision for where we're headed. Here's the strategy for where we're going. Is there any misunderstanding about this? And the best way to make that happen is through documentation, by actually taking the time to put it down on paper and make sure that's really clear, but not only to document it from the company's perspective to say, you know, hey, we want to get from $20 million ARR to $50 million ARR. Hey, that's great. But the question is, 
how are you going to do that? What, what are you going to deliver from the customer's perspective? How is the customer going to interpret this as where the product went from point A to point B so that you can then achieve those numbers of 20 million to 50 million? Ben, I think it makes total sense to go from a sort of vague mission statement to documenting it. How do you know once you have the documentation that that you're achieving this goal versus you know just documenting something that continues to be uh, vague or difficult to understand? I think the best way of validating that is having employees being able to play it back to you. So one of the things that I'm doing at Go Canvas that I think is is going to be you know really successful for us in the long run is with every cohort of new employees that we hire, I don't care what level they're at, I say, here's the vision document. I want you to read this. I want you to understand it. Uh, I want you to, to take notes and I want you to ask questions. And then what I do is have a luncheon every month with the new cohort of employees that we're bringing on board to make sure that they have a chance to talk to me about it and to you know ask clarifying questions for things that they don't understand. And by doing that, we make sure that kind of cross-departmentally, we have a common and maintained joint understanding about where we're actually headed as a business. Let's move on to another lesson. And why don't we pick creating feedback loops on getting uh, on customer feedback? One of the things that I've seen, again, as a challenge that seems to hit a lot of companies through the advisory work that I've done is they say, you know, we, we find ourselves in a situation where we've got a fork in the road from a, strate- from a strategic standpoint. Do we go down path A? Do we go down path B? If only we had the data that would be required to make this decision. You know, every company wants to be data driven and all the companies that I, that I have been working with have really been on, on the right side of that of saying, you know, we want to use data to drive the decisions that we have. The problem is sometimes they don't actually have the data that, that they need to make those calls. And that's really a function of something that they've done wrong a couple of years earlier, right? Which is they should find themselves in that situation where they actually already do have the data that they need. And so what that means for me and what I try to work with companies on right now is to say, what kinds of decisions will you be making in the future? And what kind of data can you start collecting today that's going to help you make those decisions? And I think that that data should be both qualitative and quantitative. What I've seen is, you know, obviously within product management in the last 10 years or so, there's been this real good overall direction to move things in a more quantitative and a more scientific approach to be really based on on quantitative results. So you see that when it comes to agile development, you see that when it comes to a lot of A-B testing and things like that, which is which is great. The problem is that sometimes sacrifices the company's knowledge of why the customer is doing what they're doing. They may see what's most effective, but they may not understand why. And so to me, both of those are really important to establish upfront and very early for a company. If you've got a good feedback loop of customer feedback coming in, either through customer support or customer success or direct feedback from users or you know, interviewing customers uh, to come into your office every week, all those are kind of like the, quanti- the, the qualitative elements that you're going to get that help you to then formulate um, to help you formulate hypotheses about why consumers have different kinds of behaviors. And then you can test those hypotheses by then designing against them, right? And you can test those in market. And that's where the quantitative fits in as well. So there's kind of like a nice yin and yang that you can really get to if you have both qualitative inputs and and feedback loops, as well as quantitative ones that allow you to build the right kinds of hypotheses in the first place, and then go test those in market to make sure that they're actually true. And by kind of iterating against both of those, that's the kind of like really positive cycle that can happen. But it doesn't happen by accident. And it doesn't happen as a reaction to some specific decision that you need to make as a business. It's something that you invest in 
way up front before you find yourself in those situations where you have decisions to make, but no data to drive those decisions. Do you find that there are one or two or three key things that companies can implement to get the data they need? And by, by that, I mean, you've advised over 50 companies. In 30 plus cases, you walk in <laughs> and they are not doing X and X is absolutely a thing that they should do. Yeah, we could probably spend the rest of the uh, podcast, I think, going through that list. But there's there's a few things that I would really highly recommend. I think one of them is having regular user interviews. And whether you're a B2B company or a B2C company, finding ways of getting face-to-face conversations or at least video interview type conversations with people who are representative of your target market. Understanding what it, what it is that they do on a day-to-day basis, hearing the nomenclature that they use, the language that they use, et cetera, can be especially valuable. So that's number one. I think number two is building the right kinds of reports to not just understand the generic kind of like user behaviors. So, you know, you, for example, will see a lot of companies put in place, you know, Google Analytics or Kissmetrics or something like that to kind of get this telemetry of how people are kind of like clicking and navigating through their product. The problem is they don't really know how to interpret that. And one of the things that I've found to be most effective that was that, that can be really impressive for a company when they do this is to correlate those usage patterns that they that they see with end business outcomes. So for example, if your end business outcome is something like, you know, retention that matters to you or expansion of a, of a user base, you know, et cetera, you could then look at what are the behavioral patterns that then correlate with those outcomes. And that's essential because a lot of times the investments, as we kind of talked about earlier, the investments that you make in the product may not pay dividends for another 12 or 18 months. So how do you know in the given quarter whether the investments that you're making are actually you know, driving you know, good outcomes? And one of the ways that you can do that is by saying, well, am I actually driving the kinds of outcomes that I want to in the short term, which I know end up being correlated with the outcomes that I'm looking for in the long term? So companies that do that, I think, are, are you know, really thinking about things and approaching things the right way. Let's move on to another lesson. And why don't we go with investing in differentiation? Differentiation is a really important topic for a lot of companies that are trying to get started. You know, you kind of think about the typical startup that's, you know, quote unquote, trying to disrupt the particular industry. You know, it's the thing that I that I hear about a lot. That's great. You know, that's that's where there's a lot of value to to be delivered. The question is, um, and these companies kind of find themselves in this conundrum all the time. Well, these competitors have more business traction than we do. We're trying to build that traction. When I kind of unpack all the competitor features. Which of those do I need to build myself and, and which ones do I actually not need to build and I don't want to replicate them because I'm trying to disrupt the industry. I'm trying to do something that's going to be somewhat different. And I think it's really critical to understand exactly what that point of differentiation is really going to be. And there are some great models to try to help understand what that is for your customer base. So, you know, I've seen this kind of thing happening you know, with, with various companies that, that have been flailing. Like there was one company that was, a, I'd say they're like post series C B2B SaaS company that was post product market fit. And the problem is their roadmap was just sort of like one feature after another feature after another feature. And they were doing that because either competitors had those features or they were doing it because uh, customers have been asking for those features. Um, but the problem is when all you're doing is building the kinds of features that your customers are asking for or building the kinds of features that your competitors have. How are you really going to disrupt an industry by doing that, right? You know, you're going to be hearing the same kinds of things from your would-be customers as as your competitors would be hearing, or you're going to be sort of like following suit from them. And the the issue is there that there was no clarity of what the product strategy was and how the 
user experience was going to be really differentiated from that of, uh, of their competitors. I've seen some other really good examples of this though. And one of them would come from a company that I've been working with for a long time called 10% happier, which is like a, you know, kind of meditation and, and uh, wellness app. They've done a really good job of understanding what space they're in, what they're trying to provide to their customers. They've looked at what the competitors like calm and headspace and things like that are providing and they've identified specific kinds of differentiators and isolated those things. And they've used a really good model for coming up with that that I try to you know, uh, recommend to a lot of other clients as well called the Kano model. Tell us about the Kano model. Yeah, the Kano model is, is a really valuable tool. It's one that helps you to kind of break down all the elements of your product solution into three different buckets. And the, you know, the reality is they're all on a spectrum, but you can kind of generally compartmentalize them into these three which would be must-have features. These are the kinds of things that somebody would never consider buying your product if it didn't have X, okay? Performance features, which are the general reasons that customers would say that they want your product or service. And then delighters, which are those things that they don't necessarily expect out of your product, but once provided, they say, oh, don't you dare take that away from me. That's really critical. So maybe a good example and a way of understanding these things would be to say, hey, let's say you're buying a car. You know, if I asked you, Dan, what kind of car, you know, what you would look for if you were buying a new car, what are some things that would come to mind? Gosh, safety, probably number one with young kids, sufficient size. I guess if you're going to go back to basics, I'd say it goes from point A to point B. It doesn't break down. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you're you're not alone, right? Everybody would sort of like rattle off a lot of the same kinds of things. And depending on the consumer, depending on what they're trying to buy, they may even, you know, specify different things. So somebody who's, you know, typical guy, midlife crisis might say, hey, I want to be this flashy sports car and I want it to go really fast, right? Or I want the acceleration to be great or the handling to be fantastic. So depending on your life circumstances and what kinds of things you're looking for, of course, those performance characteristics could be very different. But it's interesting to hear about the things that you don't necessarily say, right? And, you know, I think you're pretty astute to kind of realize that just getting from point A to point B is itself a must-have. But there's a lot of other must-haves that are out there as well. So, for example, seatbelts. You know, nobody says, I'm buying a car because I want seatbelts. But if you didn't have seatbelts in the car, everything else being phenomenal, I wouldn't even consider buying it period. Like that, yeah. that's just not going to work. Right. Or if, if I knew that the, that the repairs every time was going to cost me $20,000, like that's just, you know, maintenance is actually a, a really critical thing. If I can't get parts, I'm not going to be able to buy your car period. So there's no, that's not the reasons that I buy the car, but there are reasons that I wouldn't choose to buy a car. And then for performance characteristics, those are the kinds of things that generally speaking, the more, the merrier, the better they are, uh, you know, the, the, the more I'd want to buy the car. And then those delighters are things like, you know, think about the stereo that may be amazing, right? Or thinking, you know, go back in time with cars and think about things like in the 1960s when cruise control was originally added or, you know, in the 80s when power windows were sort of like provided, right? Those are things that at the time customers didn't expect to be part of their car. But once they had them, they said, wow, these things are phenomenal. I love this. And you step into somebody else's car and you're like, oh my gosh, I need to have that, right? And so over time, things that were once delighters become performance characteristics Things that were performance characteristics over time become must-have features. But to understand what your customers' expectations are and where your opportunities are to provide delighters, um, those kinds of things can really help you with a strategy and to help you identify where you need to differentiate. And the, the general principle kind of goes like this. You have to have all the must-haves. If you're missing a must-have relative to your competitors, they have it, you don't, and your customers expect it, 
you're dead, period. You've got to go solve those things first, right? Nothing else matters until you have the, the minimal list of must-haves because it'll be, it'll be plaguing you. And it's very easy when it comes to physical products like a car to identify what those things are. But sometimes with software, it's a little bit more complicated, a little bit more complex to, to try to figure those things out. Second would be performance. And it's not that you have to have better on every single performance factor, right? It's not like when you're buying a car that you expect it to have the best acceleration of every car and the most, you know, the, the best safety rating of every car. It's probably one or the other, right? And depending on the target market that you're trying to sell to, you might want to be better in one in one, you know, kind of situation versus another. So what what you really need to have is to say for the segment that I'm going to try to win, for the part for the part of the market that I'm going to really kind of like initially try to disrupt, I want to make sure for those customers that they believe that my set of performance characteristics are better than any other set of performance characteristics that I can find from the competitor products that are out there. And then finally with the delighters, these are the kinds of things that people talk about. So if you want viral growth or, you know, really kind of like rapid expansion, people don't say, yeah, you know, I, I, I love this car that I just bought because it has seatbelts. <laughs> you know, they don't say that I love this car because it's got a really nice safety rating. What happens is people step into somebody else's car and they say, oh my God, that touchscreen, that's amazing. I love that. I got to go get a car like this, right? And that's where delighters kind of come in as well. And so if you kind of understand which of those features that your customers would talk about fit into each of these categories, it tells you how important they are and what your strategy needs to be to go resolve them. When you're thinking about your overall strategy, you obviously you have the must-haves, you must have. But when you think about delighters versus performance features, you know, are you in a position, Ben, to say, you know, one is more important than the other, or are they both important? You just have to think about them differently. Yeah, I would say first and foremost, importance is probably going to be performance. But again, it's what, what I see a lot of companies making a mistake on is they keep going for performance, 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 and they lose the delighter things, mm-hmm. which sometimes in the software, like UX or design, things that can also be really important. And people may not necessarily even be able to directly point to, but they just say, wow, I just really love the ease of use of this thing. It really is like, you know, it just kind of speaks to me. It's very, you know, it's very calming to use, right? Um, those are the kinds of things that people might say about a product. But first, I would say performance is going to be most important because if there's no group of your target customers, no subset of the target market that you're going after that would legitimately look at your set of performance characteristics and say that that's a better deal than what it looks like for some competitor, then you're going to be in a problem, right? And it's not to say that you that you have to be better across everything. You just have to be better for the segment of customers that you're going after. And that's why within the space of cars, you see so many different types, right? You know, some of them are going to be really good for rugged outdoors kind of travel. And that's who they're appealing to. And based on who they're trying to appeal to, those people are going to have certain kinds of things that they care about more and certain things that they care about less. And they got to make sure that for those people, for that car, that they actually have the right set of performance characteristics. The delighters are kind of like nice to have on top of that, but they can sometimes really change things dramatically. You know, consider Tesla's touchscreen. That's done wonders for selling more Teslas, there's no doubt, right? And there's no reason that some other car couldn't have that. It's not an artifact of being an electric car. It's just the fact that they really overinvested into something that really made people's eyes pop and say, wow. Take the distinction between delighters and performance features, and and how did did that play out with 10% Happier in their competition with Common Headspace? What they've been doing is recognizing what their major point of differentiation needs to be, uh, which, you know, I, I probably can't get into too many details about exactly <laughs> the, the, the ins and outs of their business. But one of the things, if you just use the product that you'll kind of recognize as a big differentiator is is the brand, that it's very approachable, right? That it's not sort of about this, 
yoga and you know there's not this you know kind of like weird music kind of playing in the background it's about kind of like very very much being down to earth and really easy to understand that's what kind of like makes them unique and so what they've done is they've kind of like invested even more heavily into that through the content that they deliver through the user experience that is very easy to kind of like just jump in anytime that you want in your own life right and so whether you wanted to just kind of like do a meditation right before you sleep to help you get some more sleep or you're kind of like on the go and you just want to listen to something you know that uh, as you're kind of like walking or in the subway those are the kinds of things that they've done uh, to help kind of double down on what a particular subset of the, you know, of the general population that would be appropriate for a product like this would actually want. And so they've identified what those things would be. The delighters are things that I probably can't talk about too much, but there's a lot of things that are sort of like forthcoming that I think will really add to that and, and you know, compound that, uh, that positive user experience that people have. Ben, a lot of the audience here will be entrepreneurs, including entrepreneurs at the earlier stages. Let's go on to one of your next lessons, which is about who your first product hire should be. This is an interesting one. I have found time and time again that, you know, often I get brought in as an advisor to a company when a CEO recognizes, you know, I've been the product person. I've been the product mind since the very beginning. But now I've got a job to go do, you know, hey, we just raised Series A capital, whatever. I've got to go, you know, make, you know, make growth happen. I've got to farm out product to somebody else. I can't be that person anymore. Who do I need to hire? And usually they're biased and they're kind of like perspective coming in is to say, I need to hire a VP of product. I need somebody who's really senior because the CEO recognizes the criticality, you know, the importance of getting product right from the beginning because the product is the nugget of the whole entire company, you know, usually, especially at the earlier stages. And so they kind of feel like they need somebody really senior. And I've actually found the exact opposite of that, which is that there are all kinds of problems that can happen when your very first hire is a really senior level VP of product or chief product officer, unless they happen to be a co-founder in the company. And the reason that that's an issue is because it's kind of just like too many cooks in the kitchen, right? At the earlier stages, the company is your baby as an entrepreneur and the company and the product are almost like one and the same. So if there's no distinction between company strategy and product strategy, the problem is you hire that VP of product and they say, hey, I want to own I want to own the vision. I want to own the strategy. I've got all kinds of thoughts about where this thing can go. But they're really new to the company. They haven't invested time yet to get to know the customers. They haven't figured out yet, uh, you know, where the market is actually headed. And those are all the kinds of things that the that the original founder of the company does have a really good sense of. And so, you know, the VP doesn't want to necessarily roll up their sleeves and say, hey, I'm just going to write the user stories and prioritize items for the sprint and things like that. Instead, what they tend to do is say, hey, I want to go work on these bigger, more strategic things. And let's let engineering kind of like handle the actual execution side. And the reality is what you actually need as a CEO at that stage is somebody who will roll up the sleeves and do that. Now, it's nice to have somebody who actually understands product, right? So it's not, you know, you could hire somebody who's brand new and junior and hasn't done product before, but then who's going to coach that person? A lot of times what I've kind of found is that hiring a mid-level, you know, person who's got a couple of years of experience within product management is actually the right way to go because you can say, hey, you're off to the races, go make this happen. But I kind of think of all the product management work that needs to be done all the way from vision to strategy to planning to road mapping to execution, et cetera. You can think of all that as a stack. And what I want to do is start at the bottom of the stack and have somebody take that stuff over. And as they earn trust more and more with the CEO, 
then you can kind of ratchet it up to the next part of the stack and ratchet it up to the next part of the stack from there. And what I've seen is plenty of cases where that initial person that was hired is just a real rock star, a real superstar who thrives in that kind of environment. And they get promoted to being the VP of product, right? As the needs sort of like arises. I've seen other kinds of cases where somebody kind of like caps out and they can't really make it there. And it's okay. You know, that just means you hire over that person down the road. You've got a really solid product manager in place. Now you hire a VP of product at a later stage when there's enough work to do that's kind of VP level and doesn't require as much rolling up the sleeves on an individual kind of like sprint by sprint basis. Well, Ben, I have seen that mistake time and time again as well. And with that important lesson, we'll bring this to a close. I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. Cool. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Taking Notes with NextGen Venture Partners. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. To learn more about us or to hear all of our past podcasts, please go to nextgenvp.com. And now for some important disclaimers. The information contained in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any securities. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any performance or projections contained herein may be significantly affected by future events. Any opinions, assumptions, assessments, statements, or the like regarding future events or which are forward-looking constitute only subjective views and beliefs, should not be relied on, and are subject to change due to a variety of factors, including fluctuating market conditions and economic factors.